Welcome to the very first ever episode of Westside Unscripted. This is the podcast where pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I am Josh Bartels. I'm an assistant to the pastors and host of this podcast, and I am joined today by our preaching pastor, Peter Montoro. So welcome to the first ever podcast of Westside, Peter. Do you have anything to say in welcome to, to, welcome. to folks? Welcome. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. If you've made it this, if you've made it this far, you have great perseverance. So, <laughs> well, we're gl- we're glad you're here. And so, for the first podcast, I thought I would give you a question. This question comes directly from uh, one of our church members, and so we're going to give you a sticky geopolitical question. Oh wow! Here we go. So, our kids and generations sing the song, the beloved song of children. Father Abraham, much to the uh, chagrin sometimes of parents because of all the action and the, the movement. But it is getting at something true. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And that Paul in Galatians says that all who are in Christ are the offspring of Abraham. So we have, as Christians, a certain affinity for Jewish culture because so much of that story is our story as well. And uh, so today... A lot of churches, a lot of Christians have uh, an affinity even now for the uh, nation state of Israel as it currently exists to the point that there is a lot of uh, recommendations that that churches or that nations would support Israel in a lot of the way that people think about voting and things like that have to do with what is this candidate going to do for the nation of Israel. And if I understand the question correctly, then the question is... uh, why is this? What is the hoopla about churches and nations supporting Israel? What's motivating that? And then is that good? Is that bad? What, how should the church think about our relationship today to the nation state of Israel? Well, you are right that that's a uh, sticky and uh, much debated question. Um, but I think in order to understand uh, why there is so much, as you said, hoopla over this over this point. Is the uh, the dispensational movement at the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, um, was developing very uh, close in time to the modern day Zionist movement, um, and so in fact there was, uh, which resulted in the nation state of Israel. So, in order, if you you know don't know a lot about dispensationalism classic traditional dispensationalism is the idea that the the timeline of you know God's timeline uh, in fact there's you know the the Jew God's time clock kind of there was a pamphlet that was published with that title so there's very much a sense that God's dealings with the nation state of Israel are primary his dealings with the church are secondary they're an interlude they're parenthesis um Something like that. Now, not everyone who would identify as dispensationalist would take that position, but that's the classic dispensationalist position, um, is that the church is a parenthesis. So in order for the prophetic clock to be ticking, God has to be dealing with Israel. So from that dispensationalist perspective. And so the idea, you know, so in the 20s and the 30s, this sounded you know, or even before that turn of the 19th century, you know, it was really crazy. Like there, there hasn't been, and, and in fact, historically, you know, the church fathers and, and others, you know, through the time of the Reformation would point to the fact that there wasn't a, you know, 
God was no longer dealing, it appeared, with the nation of Israel as a fulfillment of Jesus's prophecy that Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed, the temple would not be rebuilt. Um, and, and that was the way that Jesus's teaching had historically been understood. So dispensationalism takes that, turns it on its head, and says, no, 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 um, that's not how prophecy is to be understood. How prophecy is to be understood is that, in fact, the temple is going to have to be rebuilt and sacrifices are going to have to be offered again. Um, and so in order for that to happen, then there needs to be a Jewish state in Israel in order for there to be a temple again. Um, and so if you're looking for the rebuilding of a physical temple that's offering sacrifices so that Antichrist can go and, and sit on an actual Holy of Holies or whatever, if that's what you're looking for, then you're going to, pardon me, then you're going to need a state of Israel. Um, and so dispensationalists were very influential. Some of them were had very significant political clout. Um, someone like uh, J. Frank Norris... Um, the pastor at a very large church in Texas and also a large church in the Midwest. I believe it may have been in Detroit, but I'm not certain of that. Was, you know, there are pictures of him walking with the presidents at the time when Israel was being set up. Um, you know, so there was a lot of, so in many ways, the foundation of the state of Israel. Now, that was at the same time as, as some of this pressure, these ideas were, were, were coming about. There was a Jewish movement to, you know, restart a state in Israel. So that it's not like the two were, you know, the same movement or there was some, you know, massive conspiracy or anything sure. like that. But it's, it's um, you know, when pressure is being put from two different directions, then something's a lot more likely to take place. Um, and so you had a move by Jews themselves to uh, build a Jewish nation state once again. Uh, and then you had a very significant Christian movement that saw this as the fulfillment of their hopes for the fulfillment of prophecy to restart God's prophetic time clock, um, as it were. Um, and so when you had that combined with um, the horror of the Holocaust and the need for, you know, a, a, a new sense of of danger in Europe and the need for, we need a place, you know, where this is not going to happen, um, then, and also a, a deep sense of guilt on the part of the European powers that they had allowed this to happen. They hadn't done anything to stop it until after it was too late. So, so you have all these things coming together. Um, and so then the nation state of Israel is founded. Uh, and of course, you know, there's a lot more to the history than just that. But it's important to recognize that it wasn't just as though, hey, they made these predictions and then they came to pass. They made these predictions and they had a lot to do with them coming to pass. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem that I have is I don't see any biblical prophecies for God doing anything with rebellious Israel. Now, I think Christians differ as to what the future of Israel is going to be when Israel repents um, and how repentant Israel and the church interact. But there are no prophecies to unrepentant atheists who happen to be of any particular ethnicity. Um, and so, you know, the, the Jewish state is not, you know, it is every bit as much of a secular nation state as any other secular nation state. And so, you know, you know, in this present age, God is dealing with the church. And so I, I would want to go back and I would say, no, the church is not a parenthesis. You know, so I, I would disagree strongly with all of those things that lead Israel to be, the nation state of Israel to be that significant. I would say those are, those just, I would disagree with the exegesis very strongly there. And I would say, no, that's just not how prophecy works. There are no prophecies that are fulfilled. There's no need 
for a physical temple to be rebuilt. In fact, if I understand Jesus's prophecy correctly, a physical temple will not be rebuilt. And if a temple is rebuilt, it will not be a temple on God's time clock. It will be a temple in rebellion against God. Um, and so, uh, you know, so that being said, I don't see any prophetic significance at all to a nation state in the Middle East or anywhere else. I don't see any prophetic or theological significance other than as an instantiation of, uh, on the one hand, if they're in idolatry and rebellion against God, then they're an instantiation of Babylon, no matter what ethnicity that they might happen to be. On the other hand, human government is given by God um, and is given to, by God for our good. Uh, and so in this time in between, before Christ comes to set up his kingdom, we should pursue healthy governments um, and we should we should pursue freedom as a good for our neighbors, out of love for our neighbors, out of love for Christ's church, but we shouldn't assign theological significance to any particular governor, any particular form of government, other than the good that they can do in this time in between. There's not a particular prophetic significance to them, other than, you know, on the one hand, the good they accomplish in the short term, sure. and uh, on the other hand, the tendency that human government always has to idolatry. So we're really thinking through... When it comes to how we should be relating to Israel, it's not all that different than how we should be relating to any other nation exactly. state. We need yes. to be thinking in terms of what all the other considerations that would come to the table in a exactly. consideration of foreign policy. Right. And and from a foreign policy point of view, you know, I would much rather see us supporting Israel than um you know, say Saudi Arabia as an al- you know, as an ally. Mm-hmm. Like we should be as a foreign policy, we should be, you know, faithful to our allies. And, you know, just as general foreign policy, you should, you should maintain your commitments, you should fulfill your treaties, this, the normal things of foreign policy, um, you know, but we should recognize that Israel as a nation persecutes Christians, uh, both Christians who come there as missionaries and the native-born Christians as well. Um, and so, you know, as a matter of, you know, policy, sometimes we work with countries who have policies we don't like, but, you know, at a real practical level, they are a persecuting nation and God is opposed to those who persecute his church and they don't persecute like say Saudi Arabia does. So that's good. Um, you know, but they don't have the religious freedom like we have still in America. Um, and so I guess what God is working through is his church. And so that's the filter. How does the government respond to Christ's church? Now, you mentioned you mentioned that uh, God you don't see God working with unrepentant Israel, but you see God working with repentant Israel. Are you speaking of there's some sort of category of Israel as repentant in the future that you're thinking of there, or are you just thinking of repentant Israel as Jewish people who have repented and come to Jesus? Both. So, so in Romans 11, it's kind of one of the puzzles that, you know, even very uh, well-respected, very thoughtful uh, scholars who love the scriptures have been known to change their minds on how to interpret the end of Romans 11 when Paul says that all Israel will be saved. Does that mean that at the end of history, all ethnic Israel is going to repent? So ethnic Israel that's left is going to repent. Now, if they repent, they're going to come into the church. So that's the point that's clear. And I just... I don't see any way around around that, that, you know, the New Jerusalem, it has foundation stones, it has gates, there's one people of God. So that's the point I think we can be really firm on. There's one people of God. If Israel repents, they come into the church, which is the, the Jew-Gentile people of God. The two ways of understanding Romans 11, though, is, is Paul simply summing up the case he's been making all along that both Jews and Gentiles belong in the church. That's one of the central points of Romans. Um, is he just restating that? Um, 
Or is he talking about something else that's going to happen at the end, that there's going to be a significant turning of unrepentant Israel to repentant Israel? And that, I think, is something I myself have gone back and forth on, <laughs> and I'll have, to make it, I'll have to make a final decision if I ever preach through Romans. But I, I think that's a really difficult decision to make. But the point I'd want to be clear on is that in the end, there's one people of God. And when there's no path to salvation that doesn't run through Jesus Christ, and you ultimately, if you belong to Jesus, you belong to his church. Um, so there's no like distinct two tracks to salvation. So then, what, so as far as thinking about Israel in the future, there could be some kind of future that's talked about by Paul in the scriptures, looking forward to something to happen with Israel in the future. But whatever that is that is happening is going to either be a turning away from Jesus and the church or a repenting and coming into it. Right, That's right, how we exactly. should see the future, w- whatever that looks like, whether it's individual Jews coming to Christ or whether or not it's the, a, a mass of the nation. Coming, right, right, right. Exactly. Either, either way, it could be something that, it, you know, is, is happening all along and it is happening all along. You know, Paul's saying, hey, mm-hmm. you know, God has not rejected his people right. that he foreknew for I myself am an Israelite. He's making the point, hey, even in this time that we live, it's not like God has, and I just want to be really clear on this. It's not like God has rejected Israel and said, now I'm going to go, I'm not going to deal with Jews anymore. I'm going to deal with the Gentiles. No, he's grafted the Gentiles into the Jewish root and Jews are still welcome into that. It's not an either or, it's a, it's a both am, but the, you know, the boundary line of the people of God is based on relationship to Jesus, not ethnicity. So we want good foreign policy with Israel so that we can go visit the place and see the archeology span and things like that. That's a good reason, good reason to want good relationships with Israel. One of the Christian perspectives we could have. Yes, absolutely. You know, good, good foreign policy, but the sort of you know, giving a quasi-Messianic status to the unbelieving, unrepentant nation-state of Israel, mm-hmm. I just, I don't, I, I, I can't go there. So for some people, this is the kind of thing that I heard a lot growing up, the dispensational idea and this kind of, the church as parenthesis, what would be some resources you would point people to, to say, if they're thinking through this, and this is maybe the first time they're hearing that kind of uh interpretation that says that the church is not a parenthesis, but is the end goal of the whole thing. What would be some places you would point people, things to read, things to consider, maybe scriptures to study, things like that? Yeah, well, I mean, scriptures to study, I'm trying to think, there's there's just so many. Um, one, I would, I would probably start with, uh, there just aren't any scriptures that teach that. <laughs> so that's an argument from a negative, but that's a really big claim to make. Um, the church is parenthesis, and you know you read what Paul says about the church in Ephesians. I am just, I, I, I really struggle to see how you can read Ephesians, you know, two and three, um, and the cosmic significance that Paul gives to Christ's church, um, and then say, well, that's a parenthesis that's God's second best plan. Uh, so it's it's more like I, I just really struggle to see why you know how you can read you know you read that or you read you know, read Matthew or you read any of the gospels and it just, so it doesn't, it doesn't work with, and, and particularly, I guess the single biggest thing for me, so I was raised believing that. Um, and the single biggest thing for me was reading how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. So, you know, when Paul talks about the promise of the land, for instance, to, uh, to Abraham, Paul universalizes, universalized, he says, Abraham was promised the whole earth. 
So Paul takes the promise of the land that's given in Genesis, and he connects it to the new heavens and the new earth, um, ultimately, uh, that uh, that uh, Jesus' promises are coming that, uh, that he, he speaks elsewhere of. So he connects the those who are the seed of Abraham are ultimately heirs of the whole earth. And you have that promise even in the Beatitudes um, that uh, was in the, the Beatitudes. The, the meek, meek, the meek will inherit the earth. Yeah. I'm working on the Beatitudes right now, but I'm working on, I'm really focused on the first ones. I have to remember. <laughs> um, yeah, so the meek shall inherit the earth. And, and Paul's connecting all of those things. And, and one of the things that's been most helpful to me is if, if God does more, he hasn't done less. Um, and so the, tem- the tendency is to, to have a very rigid, everything needs to be fulfilled exactly the way it looked from the Old Testament perspective. But ultimately, Jesus fulfills everything but he fulfills in a grander, you know, a grander way um, than, than could have been seen from the Old Testament perspective. Jesus is, he fulfills everything in the Old Testament, but he's more. Um, and so there's that expansion. In terms of books, the one that's been most helpful to me is there's a book, Kingdom Through Covenant, um, by uh, Gentry and Wellam. Um, that's very good. It's very long. And there's a shorter uh, version. I don't recollect the title of the shorter version, but it's like, it has Kingdom and Covenant in the title as well. We have both of them in the bookstore. So there's like a big, like, thousand-page book that's really, really good. Uh, and there's an abridged that's like 200-something pages. Um, and that's really good. And Gentry has an even smaller book on how to read and understand the biblical prophets that's like 100-something pages. We have that in the bookstore as well. Um, and that really helps to understand the sort of symbolic language the prophets are working with. So how would they have understood uh, what would they have thought a little? So literal interpretation is a really big thing for for dispensationalist. But I, I think what we need to look at is what what did the spirit intend? But you know how would if you want to understand if you want to take a literal interpretation of someone's words, you need to understand what they meant. You know what are the figures of speech that they're using? You know, and and so one of the things that uh, you know is so if if you if you're immersed in ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, Signs in the heavens are a sign for a change in government. So this isn't just something that's found in, you know, so, you know, the moon being sackcloth and the sun, or the sun being a sackcloth and the moon being red. It, it's not talking primarily about blood moons or that sort of thing uh, that people, you know, look and, and say, oh, there's a blood mm-hmm. moon, something incredibly right. significant is about to happen. But it's it's talking about a change in government. And you see this because you see these things fulfilled in the context of the Old Testament. Um, the fall of Babylon is described in this sort of language. Um, and, and then, you know, what's the, what's the fulfillment of that? Well, Babylon is, you know, Babylon falls. That's the fulfillment of it. Um, and so this, Jesus uses that same language to describe the fall um, of the Jerusalem establishment um, and the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and so it's, it's symbolic language that had a clearly understood meaning in that context. So if we want to understand it, we want to take it literally, we want to take it seriously, we've got to take the context in which those words come, um, you know, seriously. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if we if we say, for instance, the Dow is up, um, you know, we would, if you're into finances or whatnot, you would, you would understand that the financial value of the Dow Jones Industrial Index has risen. If we say the Dow is down, you know, the financial value of you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Index has fallen, um, we wouldn't imagine, we wouldn't look for a thing called a Dow that has, you know, ascended up into the heavens or descended into the earth. 
um, you know, that's a that, building that is crashed down, right? right. That's crashed yeah. down or a plane that is risen. That wouldn't be a more literal understanding. That would just be, um, a ludicrous understanding. <laughs> yeah, it would be a ludicrous <laughs> yeah. understanding, but it would just be, it wouldn't be understanding the, uh, semantics or the terminology right. that people are using. Yeah. And, and you look in, and, and, you know, dispensation, you know, I, I'm not, you know, condemning everyone who would call themselves a dispensationalist by any means, because there's been a lot of change. So what is dispensationalism today, um, is very different from, you know, if you go back at one point when I was wrestling with this, I did a lot of historical reading. You go back to what the debates were over, um, you know, in the teens when this was growing in popularity, uh, it was, some of it was <laughs> almost like looking for, you know, looking for, uh, you know, now, you know, now planes can take off. So now this prophecy that the Tao can rise can be fulfilled or something like right, that, yeah. uh, you know, in a way that it just is not very perceptive. Looking for much more literal things to happen. Yeah, but it's time. not even necessarily looking for more literal things to happen. It's, it's looking at things from the perspective of our newspapers mm, rather than mm-hmm. the context of the ancient culture. Yeah. So it's, you know, I am absolutely for literal interpretation completely, but it's what would a literal interpretation look like from the perspective of the biblical writers, mm-hmm. not from my perspective. Right. My perspective is irrelevant. Um, you know, what, what's in my newspaper is irrelevant. What's relevant is what would the biblical writers and their readers have understood? Um, and then how does the spirit show us how these things connect? Yeah. Good. Well, that's been uh, really insightful. I'm excited to see what other questions we get thrown at us and uh, what, what you do with them. So this, is, this has been an exciting first episode, and we are glad that you all have listened in to uh, Pastor Peter answer this first question. If you have questions that you would like to have addressed on this podcast, you can reach out to me. My email address is josh at Bible Direction for Life. And I will cue those questions up for Pastor Peter, and we will see uh, what he does with them in the future. So you can catch also our sister podcast, Bible Direction for Life, to hear Pastor Peter's preaching and teaching here at the church, as well as all of our other pastors and other preachers and teachers here in the congregation. Uh, so thanks again for listening. If you would, if you are new to Westside Baptist Church and don't know who we are, and you're listening to this podcast for the first time, you can find our website, www.bibledirectionforlife.com. And uh, we hope to see you again next week for uh, more talk about theology and culture.